Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Entrepreneur Podcast, where I, Caitlin Fritz, help you reach your entrepreneurial potential. Together, we can build your dream social impact business so that you can leave a legacy beyond your nine to five. Hello, hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Everyday Entrepreneurship. My name is Caitlin. I am an award-winning entrepreneur, business coach, and enterprise educator who's worked with 650 plus founders across the world. And today, I'm really excited to share with you someone from my own network, a colleague of mine I met at Cambridge Judge Business School. His name is Daniil Sherbakov. I've known Daniil now for uh, the past couple of years, an absolute inspiration. He has over a decade of experience in various forms of entrepreneurship, from VR to SaaS to events technology. And now he's most recently moved into luxury skincare. So in this interview, we dive into how does an engineer from Russia come to the UK to co-found a luxury skincare brand that's over 250 years old. Yes, you've absolutely heard that right. So have a listen in. In this conversation with Daniil, we're going to talk about failures, growth, and action. So I hope you enjoy. So today I have Daniil, who I have known now for the past couple of years. Absolutely incredible entrepreneur, innovator, amazing. So Daniil, share a little bit about your background and and what got you into entrepreneurship. So first of all, Caitlin, thank you so much for inviting me. And probably it's time to say uh, sorry for all of the listeners for my horrible Russian accent, but I think it's make our conversation even funnier. But anyway, like I'm not trying to pretend and to hide my roots. So like, I think it's impossible because if I will try to imitate any other accents, it would be even more hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) But answering your question, I was lucky enough to do the let's say, tech entrepreneurship for almost a decade now. It's like I recently counted all my years into the area and I was actually fascinated that like I'm 31 now and 10 years out of 31, I'm doing tech startups. I believe for the most of my career, I have been responsible for launching Eastern European startups on the Western markets, especially onto the United States and the United Kingdom. I believe throughout my career, I have seen uh, numerous like, oh, probably a never-ending instances of startup failures, both in which I was part of, I was, like, helping in some sort of way, also some moderate successes, so some, some, some startups that I was involved in was actually acquired and sold. And, like, you know, for me, startups, and I think I was lucky enough, and I am lucky enough that it's so easy to see, and this is so common right now, to see that you love what you're doing, Everyone, like, it's a society that expects you to like what you're doing, even if you do not. But somehow, out of the woods, without any reason, the fact that I selected to do, like, I'll say, an engineering degree back then in Russia, and so on and so forth, and it turned out that I love it, it's a complete coincidence. And at that moment, everyone, at least in Russia, was wanted to be either an economist or financial guy or a lawyer or an attorney. And, like, the IT guys were considered as geeks and so on and so forth so like you know 
it's it's very interesting. I think that the final chair on the top of what I'm doing in life is that I love to share knowledge as much as you do. That's why I believe we like had a great fit all together throughout our time at judge i think it's very important for me not only like to like do stuff but also to share the knowledge for let's call it for the other generations of entrepreneurs because i believe that the reason of a startup success is always very unique and it's unreplicable but i believe the problems on the way towards this success are somewhat the same And like, I don't know the secret sauce. And I would, let's say, pit on the person who will say that he knew the success, uh, like peel or whatever. But what I definitely aware of that the mistakes are somewhat similar. And simply by sharing my mistakes, by admitting them, let's call it this is some sort of a reflection. Or like inability to understand what really want, went wrong at that moment that helps me even to become a better entrepreneur on my end, but also help other people to save investors' money, their nerves, their time, and their health. No, 100%. And that that's always how we've been. I've known Danielle now for years, and we are probably two of the most open people about our failures <laughs> in entrepreneurship. So you've moved to the UK back in 2021. Right. So whether it's in the UK or back home in Russia, what were some of the biggest quote-unquote failures that you learned from? Oh, it's a good question. I think one of my favorite uh, failures that happened in a, let's say, not like a recent time, but what I love to tell you about. So it was actually in the United States. And at that moment, we were, like I was basically, like, you know, in Russian, when you say we, you most of the time mean I. While in English, <laughs> when you say we, you are talking about some sort of homogeneous uh, people in a group. So I will try to fix myself and say I all the time because this is no, what this I is we. This is we, the me, myself, and I, we. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, I was responsible for launching a event marketing platform on the United States market. And we were lucky enough to get a partnership with Eventbrite. And we were actually a part of and being promoted by them to over 10,000 event organizers worldwide. And this is all great. So we had hundreds of paid clients very happy with that. At the very same time, we, uh, the way that, that the tool works, it connected through the APIs to Eventbrite and everything goes smoothly, automatically, like a social login with Facebook or let's say, I don't know, with LinkedIn on the website. So very smoothly for the event organizers because the uh, event people, they shouldn't necessarily be tech savvy to organize all of that. And this is absolutely normal. So I spent, I believe, half a year convincing one of the biggest ticket players on the UK, in the US market, which called Ticket.com. I believe they were also owned by Baseball League, as far as I remember. Ooh, so like, they're, okay. like, they're like huge. And like I was talking in numerous of times, and imagine this like random Russian guy. Like we, like our partnership with Eventbrite helped to facilitate this conversation. But anyway, we got into the due diligence process, so they were finally open to consider the integration because we were able to explain them. And just like what happened at the background in Russia, Radario is uh, one of the biggest ticketing providers. So as much as tickets.com, but on the Russian market. And this idea of a marketing tool was basically born out of the need of the Russian clients. But at the very same time, we will 
we were well aware that comp- competing on ticket market is insane. It's uh, US, you have Ticketmaster, Ticket.com, and some of the other few players. So we never had this intention. And what we plan to do is in order, because our clients always mix up marketing platform with a tickets platform. And sometimes like in Google, they were logging in into the other platform, got frustrated that their credentials doesn't work and so on and so forth. So I was pushing to make a new name. As far as I remember, we even created a new name. But then it was put on pause for the sake of, let's say, like, let's do it later. It's not that important. So this is the context. Then we got into the due diligence, like, and we are all happy. It's like half a year project, like tough negotiations to convince them that at least we are legit. And then, let's say one day after the due diligence officially started, I received a note from from the business development director of tickets.com saying that, like, Daniel, you know what? Like, our lawyers just like Google Tradario, and we found that you have also a ticketing business. So, unfortunately, we just have to, like, shut down our conversations because we are not uh, sure that you don't want to launch a ticketing business on states as well. So this is like the funny Ooh. story. So so how did you deal with that? Just have to swallow. <laughs> like, what, what, <laughs> let me say the way it is. Like obviously I try to say them guys, we have no intention uh, to launch any ticketing business. And by the way, we did not. So it wasn't like like at like do you say called like a Trojan horse or whatever? Like you know, we we didn't try to steal their customers. We have no attention. We never had these budgets. We are we're happy to like sign an exclusive agreement where it is written that we are not able to like get those their clients like and so on and so forth. But unfortunately, I believe we wasn't at that level to gain, let's say, probably enough trust. We were just like starting to get it. So that's it. So I think it's not even because let's say. We were Russians or whatever. It was just like a relatively unknown company, uh, let's say, in the United States market. So there was not enough confidence and trust on their side into us. So this happens. And I couldn't assure you that it won't happen if we will have a renaming. But probably it would happen at a later stage and I would be able to explain to them, guys, this is even a separate entities, not only from a legal perspective, but from the brand perspective as well. But like this happens. It's fun. So you told me why this is one of my favorite and most spectacular failures of all time. I, I've had moments like that as well, where I wish there was, you know, this nugget of knowledge, but you just really need to roll with the punches, take it as a lesson <laughs> and yes. and move on forward. What I think is really interesting, though, Daniil, is I kind of started in the arts humanities side of things and went into tech. You mm-hmm. started in tech and now are working at Libyan Daughters, which is a consumer brand product. So how did you switch from engineer to skincare? I'm very curious. That's a great question. And I think I have been with Libyan Daughters, I believe, literally for nine months already. And this is perhaps the most frequent questions that I got asked. And I even pre- have like a prepared answer to this question to cut it short. But I will tell you the real deal. Oh, and yeah. I tell us, tell I, us the inside I, scoop. <laughs> and I think this is very important. And this is, by the way, what I learned throughout working in different end- industries as of its event or hospitality and so on and so forth. So when you work into this tech bubble of, let's say, software as a service companies for other tech businesses, 
everyone is tech savvy, everyone likes tech, everyone is talking about tech, and you have a wrong impression that all of the other industries are as much, let's say, tech-driven than the industry and than the bubble that you are into. And I believe as much as any other industry outside of this bubble, the beauty industry, for obvious reasons, is not that much tech-driven. They might talk a lot as any other industries about agile, about, like, I don't know, Scrum, OKRs, and stuff, but the reality is, even this is the way how we organize as humans, we, like, prefer to keep the status quo. Like, the way it is, this is very natural. So, for me, it's not just, like, say, I'm switching from tech to, let's say, creams, or, let's say, skincare only. Not at all. Basically, we are, if, if we dig a bit deeper, in addition that we are making our own skincare products, we are actually a tech-driven company. And if you ask me, because I have no intention, like, you're a close friend of mine, I have no intention to do a sales pitch right now, and I promise you to say the real deal. So, what makes us tech-enabled and what makes us different from the market is, let's say, is not a unique formulas or rare ingredients and all of this, like, marketing bullshit that you could see, let's say, all over the place in many brands. No offense to them, but, like, this is what they most of the time focus. Our unique sauce is actually very different. Think about that you are going to, let's say, a department store and you are spending, let's say, 300 pounds in a jar of, let's say, any other fancy brand that is available there. And then you have a salesperson who is like very gentle, telling you that you're going to do this and you're going to do all that. All the magic. Yes, yes, yes. So you are inspired. All, all great. And then you tried it and it's absorbed very fast. So like, and it smells like, I don't know, a fragrance. Magical. Then you got home and then you started to using it and you could either get a redness as an after effect. Or let's say it simply doesn't work for you. It doesn't do what you expected it to do. And what you're going to do, you basically ended up with a jar of an expensive thing. You could either leave it at your bathroom or, for instance, give it to a friend of yours or to your mom. Like, for instance, like just here it is. And this is what I found out when I was interviewing our customer base is what attracts them to us. Because what we offer and why we consider ourselves luxury, not because of the price point, or the fancy packaging or the fancy design, but what we offer after the purchase. So basically, the client of Libyan Daughters, and we are providing subscription boxes, personalized ones. Once she or he gets the box, he also gets a concierge number in WhatsApp for convenience. So if a client has any side effects, or even our primarily target audience is, is woman over 24, 35 as of now so for instance if their kids are teenagers and they have let's say pimples all over the face you have us so consider this is some sort of let's say theory for skincare but with a personal approach or let's say skincare insurance so that those people are not lost with their problems because as we say the only one who knows all of our problems is google and when you start Googling any skincare problems, most of the times you find out some anons writing that this is cancer. And like, yeah, this it's, scary. it's a scary place. Don't do that. <laughs> yes. Or you could go to your friend of yours. So basically, it's very rare if you don't have a severe condition that you really go to a doctor. And this is, and this is what we provide that you are in a good hands and you are basically not just like a client who buys from us, but you are, let's call it, 
family member. And we really mean it, and this is what attracts, this is what drives our metrics, really. Not the unique formulas. Of course, we have it. We have 250 years of legacy, and this is not a marketing flaw. But like if we are talking the like as a product people, the post-purchase service is what it makes it different, and what is, by the way, very hardly replicable by our competitors because they are focused on a high volume sales through the department stores and online and we are due to the natural origin of our products and the shelf life of only three to six months we are not even capable of selling in department stores like Harrods or Bergdorf Goodman in New York so then one if anyone hasn't checked it out, you have to check it out. And I know they're <laughs> launching you. they're launching a new website, so I'm really excited. Hopefully, by the time this this is live, the website is live. Now, how did you transfer then all of these skills you've had from VR events tech into this amazing customer luxury experience? Was that a natural transition for you, or were you able to leverage some of your unique skills into this business? You know, this is how I I will have a very strange analogy. So back then in Russia, and we like talk about Russia, I believe as much as tech about it, but like probably uh, because I can't go back, but this is a different conversation. Anyway, when you learn at the university, you have a mark, like a notebook for marks. So it's not digital. You just like a professor always sign after the exam and mark it to your notebook. And there is a phrase that half of your studies at the university, you work for that book. And the other half, that notebook works for you. So basically, if you fail the exam, but professor sees that previously you have a good marks, he's more inclined to give you a better mark or give you a second chance. And this is how I feel about right now. It feels like all of my career, I have been learning mistakes, gaining trust from other people, and now I can finally leverage that. So it's not only my experience, but the combined experience of my peers friends of mine who has done different things as of legal design and so on and so forth so, so this is how i really feel about it from this angle from the another angle actually if we put the tech aside of how to make this concierge service life from the product development angle d2c or like consumer goods market is very different from tech market because it's not that much lean Mm-hmm. You could not like you could iterate with a website design or let's say with a concierge service and so on and so forth, but you could only do one packaging at a time and spend a fortune into it. You could go to the regulator and have only one formula approved at a time if you would like to launch a new product, and you better do it right from the first attempt. So I actually struggle a lot with that. Because it feels like that this is unfortunately only one way how to do it. So I think this is when, let's say, my lean skills more, let's say, hurt than help. But like I'm trying to adjust because this is something new. And basically this is help all of my neuron connections in the brain to finally working. Because this is something that I'm not like exposed that wasn't that much exposed to. So I'm finally like trying to begin and also like... Honestly, Kipling, since startups, it's not a rocket science, like really, especially launching a startup. It's actually, it's not magic. Uh, it's There is no silver, silver bullets. You basically do somewhat the same thing as of iterate and learn, fail fast. So like, if you know... There's books there is, about it. Yes. There, like, if you read a few of them, you read them all. 
And like I started reading books again about luxury. And this is so interesting. Like how do we select brands? Because before, for me, a branding exercise is just like, let's create a color palette, a logo for our uh, product and forget about it. Because anyway, we're going to do a B2B sales for enterprise. So we need to go to restaurants, meet with people and all of exhibitions and so on. But here, like it started to all make sense. When you look at some brands, let's not use Apple as an example. This is the most boring example of them all. But any fashion brand, I do not necessarily luxury, but like or cutlery brand or whatever, when you just look at it and the appearance shares your values. And this is also could be created. So I'm just amazed by all of those, let's say, nuances and new world that I have never thought about. And this is fascinating. And this is always like makes me think and keeps me alive because this this is interesting this is new and even the metrics that i can see in our product shows me that we are on the right road i love that i think it, usually it's it's the other way around as someone pulling out books of coding you're pulling out books of branding and seeing the depth of what that entails and yes it is completely different than probably those b2b SaaS kind of sales so if you were going to give advice, because you've been on both sides of the entrepreneurship, you've you've given advice, you've done it, and now you are probably the first person I know who has worked their way up to co-founder of a luxury good business, which I am just always amazed at. What advice would you give someone who's really interested in more of these consumer goods into kind of the luxury space? How should they even get started? You know, like, I believe that still exists on the market so-called, let's say, Amazon brands boom. When they have lots of those companies, I remember at least one of those, which called Razor Group and so on and so forth, that constantly trying to launch an Amazon brand and, let's say, try to sell it online. Like, the success remains unknown. I don't, I never seen their financial reports whatsoever. But I think it's like this is to somewhat the same idea. If you would like to launch a consumer brand, go and try to work in such kind of a companies. I don't think that going to a FMCG brand is a good idea because it's way organized. So you don't learn a lot about how to found the company. But, right. if you, but when you're working in those brands that are just at the formation stage, I think it would be very like crucial for that. And also there are tons of accelerators and there are tons of, let's say, venture builders that like you could come with an idea. So for me, and I think this is as much as with any startup or entrepreneurial endeavor, less planning, more action, just like fail fast. Anyway, it's going to fail. The first, the second one, like guys, it took me, as you just mentioned, almost a decade to become a co-founder. And I think this is Still, I'm very surprised that not all people know, and I think this is pretty much universal across the world, that people think that if they did not found or if they haven't found that a startup by the time that you are at the university, so as Zuckerberg did and so on and so forth, like if they are not dropouts and all of this, like... The fantasy of startups. Absolutely. Then it's not for them. But the reality is, I believe a year ago, I saw a statistic that the average age of a unicorn founder, and I'm not quite sure whether I would like to found a unicorn in general. This is another conversation. That's, a, that's still, another story. Yes. But still, it is 42. So it simply means that in order to found something successful, you have to be, there is a learning curve. 
you have to be a part of building something as let's say an active member or even as an observer so for me this is absolutely normal and i think this is the way how it should be no i i totally agree i think getting that knowledge you know for me i think it's almost like building your your toolkit like you have to learn all these individual things for you to go apply them in your own business do you have any last parting words for anyone interested in you know their their own entrepreneurship journey or any kind of advice or inspiration i have i have one i have one actually so you know we are always talking about let's say that your product has to be unique or whatever and like you have like you have to differentiate yourself from the competition and what i genuinely wish to all the aspiring and even to myself as an entrepreneur better to have unique problems instead of unique products you know what i'm talking about because i don't want to repeat the problems that has been done tons of times i really it's so hard but i really try to learn from the others mistakes so having unique problems that means that you already skipped all of the common problems and this is what i would like to wish to everyone I love that. Thank you so much, Daniil. You can find out more about Daniil in the show notes. And once again, always, always, always love talking to you. I feel like we are entrepreneurial soul siblings. Yes, I do feel so. I do feel so the same. Now, one thing I love about speaking with Daniil is his honesty. Since the first time I met him, he has been nothing but an open book. Him and I, like I mentioned, are you know, soul siblings when it comes to sharing our highs, lows, hurdles, failures, and like those uh, moments we mentioned in the interview where you just need to roll with the punches. But what I love about Daniil is I learn from him all the time. You need to follow him on LinkedIn. He's sharing messages about his own entrepreneurial journey and advice for other founders. He's someone who shows that you can transition from various industries and environments and use those skills to adapt. It's like how he brings in entrepreneurship and his engineering background into a field like cosmetics and luxury goods. You might think they're diametric, but there is more overlap than you think. He's always had a heart for impact and creating things that really get him excited in the morning. One thing that happened off uh, camera and off podcast interview is, you know, he shared with me that he wakes up every morning excited and he goes to bed early because he's so excited for the next day. And that is what I wish for all of you. Entrepreneurship is a journey. Sometimes it might be in various industries, shapes, forms, but I hope that you can find those moments and those nuggets of knowledge throughout your path and really build something or be a part of something that gets you so excited in the morning. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Everyday Entrepreneurship. To stay tuned and most up to date, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow me, Caitlin Fritz, on Instagram. And if you have any questions about building your business with impact, drop me an email with the link in the show notes. 
This podcast is produced by the great people at the Podcast Boutique. I look forward to catching up with you next week. See you then.